0: This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 17 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and joining me here today is another really amazing guest. She is the author of The Metal Programming Guide, and she's the co-host of the Ray Vendelish podcast. It's Janie Clayton. Welcome to the show, Janie.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. How's things over in, you're in Wisconsin, right?
1: Yes, I am in Wisconsin and it's a little cold here right now. Uh, we had a really mild winter up until, like, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, and then all of a sudden we just got a lot of snow, and everything got really cold, and it's like, okay, this would have been great during Christmas when it was, like, 50 degrees, and I was wearing shorts, but, unfortunately, it waited until now.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, sometimes you can't control it, well, you can never control the timing of the weather, but, you know, sometimes you wish the weather was more... Nicely timed to the occasions.
1: Well, I read that um, the, the foundations of chaos theory were developed and discovered um, in, during the 50s and 60s because the government was trying to find a way to control the weather. And so, like, there are all these conspiracy theorists talking about how, you know, there's some person, like, in Washington down in the you know, the bowels of, you know, Congress or whatever that has a, a button that they can push to, like, create hurricanes and tornadoes and stuff like that. I'm just like, no, you're, you're giving us entirely too much credit on that front. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, if, if so, the least they could do is just give us a white Christmas, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. It could be like Camelot, you know, ne- never rains until after sunset.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. So we've actually never met in person, but we will meet pretty soon at UIConf in Berlin. Yay! Yeah, that's gonna be fun. Are you doing a lot of conferencing and traveling this year?
1: I've been trying to cut back on that. So last year I did two international conferences, and I think I spoke at 10 conferences total last year, but now I have an actual job where they expect me to be in the office and, you know, do work for other people. So, like, I've I've had to cut back on that a little bit this year.
0: Yeah, (laughs) that's totally understandable.
1: However, if anybody did want me to come speak in uh, France or Japan and feed me, like, ramen noodles, I would totally be okay with that.
0: Awesome. So uh, apart from your new job, you've also just released a new book, uh, The Metal Programming Guide, which is uh, really exciting. So how's it been working on that book?
1: That was a really interesting experience. So back in 2014, when uh, Metal was introduced, I I like to make the joke that it was the, the most exciting announcement of WWDC for exactly 10 minutes. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, before Swift came along.
1: Yeah, but like um, back when I had originally started with programming, before I was a programmer, I'd gone to school for audio engineering and video editing. And like I'd taken classes in uh, 3D modeling and 3D animation and um, like I said, audio engineering. And so for me, getting into programming, like I thought, okay, you know, what, I'm going to get into programming. I'm going to learn Java. I'm going to go work for a health insurance company and I'm going to have this boring, like, you know, brain dead job that I do to earn money, but f- that I'm not really going to enjoy. But when I got into iOS and I found out about OpenGL and core audio and core graphics and all of these different frameworks for media production like that really got me excited about programming but like I just like I, when I first started out I'm like okay it takes a couple of years to get involved in this stuff these things are really old there are all these experts out here like there's no way for me to be able to get in on any of this stuff because I'm never going to have enough experience to actually be able to do anything with it so when Metal came out like I felt like this was like an opportunity for me to be able to jump in on something at the ground floor before, like, because everybody else was going to have kind of the same experience of starting in the same place and so like I got really excited about that more so than I did about even Swift or any of the other things that were announced because I felt like that was my framework and that was the thing that was created that I was supposed to go and learn and be an expert at and like for a couple of years I just didn't get to do much with it because I was busy with Swift, I was busy with a bunch of other stuff and I started to feel kind of like I had missed out on my opportunity to jump on that Um, on the technology when it was brand new and nobody else had done it. So I figured other people would pick it up other people would run with it other people would be the experts in it and i just i'd miss my shot and i was really disappointed about that but then this opportunity for this book came i saw that there really weren't a lot of people over the last few years who had picked up metal and started working with it and anybody who did pick it up wound up working for apple so there just wasn't <laughs> like like I, I always said like i wanted to be the marcus zara of something because when i was learning programming like marcus zara was the the, the expert of of core da- of you know like core data like you went to him if you had questions about stuff because he was the expert on that I, wa- I wanted to be the I wanted to be the the Marcus Zara of something I wanted to be the, the Janie Clayton of whatever and like when the opportunity came to write this metal book like I just I had felt for years that this was something I was supposed to do and I was really happy to have the opportunity to take a year off and really immerse myself in metal and become a subject matter expert in that area of iOS
0: yeah that sounds really cool it's interesting with metal because when it first came out, I have this had a similar feeling like you know this is going to be really big, this is going to be huge, and you know I'm sure there's going to be like a lot of you know material on it. There's going to be a lot of you know people writing about it. And sure, in the beginning there was a lot of you know here's how to get started, and here's how it uh, you know maybe compares to OpenGL or here's what's new. But like you say, there hasn't been a ton of information, and a lot of it is kind of just how to get started. And I guess. A reason for it might be that, you know, as developers, for example, on iOS, there's we get so much kind of for free from Apple when it comes to this kind of rendering things that very few people have to like drop down and actually work directly with Metal, but it's it's super cool once you do.
1: Yeah, um, and I would agree like that. They're generally speaking, unless you're actually going like developing a game engine, especially for like the graphics rendering stuff, they're usually is a better way of doing things if you want to do like image processing or 3D graphics or whatever because you get so much with like scene kit and you get so much with core image but like so you, you're kind of mentioning that you, you were kind of surprised too that more people didn't get involved with this stuff. I've, I've noticed a lot with um, iOS that we get so much new stuff every single year that I feel kind of like almost like we have like squirrel syndrome where like you <laughs> right. know, something new and shiny it's like oh my god this is amazing oh my god there's another new thing oh god. and like, like if something is more than a year old I feel like people don't really get excited about it anymore, right? And so, like, I, I I'm, I've noticed over the last like nine months that a, like ARKit has become significantly more powerful than it was when it was initially introduced. But because it was introduced like a year ago, well, it's not new and exciting anymore. So, like a lot of these frameworks that are really complicated and involved like core ML and metal and So on and so forth like I feel like they don't get the attention that I feel like they need because sometimes You need a couple of years to get up to speed on a technology and it changes very rapidly But since it was introduced like more than a year ago, nobody cares about it anymore,
0: right? Everyone's always looking for the new hot stuff. Yes. Yeah, Cool. So speaking about game development, uh, you've also started uh, getting a little bit into game development, I've seen. You've started a new blog where you write about your experiences getting into game development. Yes. So how's that been?
1: Um, that has been a really cool thing to be able to do. So back, again, when I first started with programming, like I started a blog because, for me, like I'd, I'd been a writer before I got into programming, so I liked to write down my, my thoughts and my, my thought process and how I, I processed information. And so I had originally started a blog when I was a student talking about learning iOS development. But then my, that blog kind of got off focus because I wasn't a student anymore. I was going and I was like speaking at conferences. I was writing books. I started uh, writing more about mental health advocacy See on there and I just kind of felt like I'd gotten away from my from the, the core purpose of my blog and I didn't really know what my blog was anymore and also while I was working on the book I didn't feel like writing it anymore Right. and so like when I got done with the book like I knew I still wanted to keep writing and I knew I needed another project after the book was done and I just I was trying to figure out something that I could do and I really it, I've never um, published an app to the, the app store and that was the thing that really bothered me but like I knew that I wanted to write a game I had a game that I'd wanted to write for like 10 years that like I just never took the time to do. And so I just decided that instead of having like this big overall Red Queen Coder blog where I was going to write about a lot of different things, I was going to have a very focused, targeted blog specifically on game development so that I could stay focused and like put together a, a larger project so that I could ship a uh, game by the end of the year.
0: Oh, that's really cool. And I guess also it's, it's very nice to do a blog that way because you're kind of learning along with the audience and you also have like a little bit of extra motivation to keep going because you can keep writing about it and keep posting new posts.
1: And like I found that I don't genuinely understand something unless I have to explain it to somebody else. So the process of trying, of thinking about like, okay, what would be a good topic for a, a, a blog post on this? What is one small thing that I can get done that I can explain to people? That that's a way of incrementally getting things done and keeping yourself focused so that you don't like start like yak shaving and doing a bunch of other stuff that <laughs> is totally like like off topic of what it is that you're actually trying to get done.
0: Yeah, and especially with game development, it's so easy for that to happen because you're so excited and you want to build this thing and then you have different ideas and you try out this mechanic and you jump over to this other system and then you get excited about something like, oh, now I'm going to implement pathfinding, you jump over to that, you know, so... I guess that's a really nice way to just you know, like you say, keeping yourself focused and you know doing things kind of more piecemeal.
1: And it's also like I've noticed that there aren't really a lot of good resources out there for specifically native iOS game development because again, like SpriteKit was introduced in iOS seven, so that was like years ago, and GameplayKit was introduced, I think, even before SpriteKit or around the time SpriteKit. Like all these things are pre Swift, and so like people aren't really talking about them anymore because they're not new and shiny, but they're incredibly complicated and they're very different from the way that we. Think about how to do like like MVC and all of the other coding that we do, just interacting with the Cocoa frameworks. And I just like I was um, looking over the Gameplay Kit framework recently, and like every year they keep adding a lot of new stuff there, and like th- this this framework is amazing. And I look at it like nobody talks about this because it's something that was introduced a while ago. And like, I wish that people knew all of these really cool things that keep getting added to this framework every single year, but nobody talks about it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Uh, I did a talk last year called Game Development for App Developers. And it was kind of about trying to bridge the gap a little bit between the app development world and the game development world. Because I think a lot of A big reason why people don't really get into game development, even if they're, you know, really, really good programmers, uh, even if they want to, they have some idea for a game they really want to build is because the, the world's so, so different and the kind of, you know, terminology that's used in both game development and app development is so different and the tooling and everything, so I guess that's also can be a reason for, you know, it being a little bit harder to approach or harder for people to kind of, you know, write about and share things about
1: like I'd had a, a, a steep learning curve when I got into doing SpriteKit stuff because it was it was very different from like again like the Cocoa frameworks like there was the the update loop and the the rendering loop and all of and like did move and there's a lot of like um, base things in there and it's not like you know view did load view did whatever and so like I kept trying to write it like it was a Cocoa. Project, but it's not a cocoa project. It's a game project, and it just I, I fought with it for a really long time until I had like a click in my head of like, oh, this is different. Yeah. I have to figure out what the design patterns are for this type of thing, and not try to make it into whatever it is that I'm already familiar with.
0: Right, exactly. Cool. So, what do you say? Should we start diving into our questions that we've gotten from the audience? Huzzah! All right, so as you know, this show is all about answering your questions about Swift and different kinds of development programming and techniques. And in this case, we're going to talk, to talk a lot about metal. We're going to talk about graphics programming and things like that. So I think it's going to be really, really fun and interesting. Uh, and if you want to submit a question for an upcoming episode of the show, you can easily do so by heading to at Swift by Sundell on Twitter or going to swiftbysundell.com podcast. So for this episode, we're gonna kick it off with a great question from Alan Wickstead. And Alan wants to know, when do I learn Metal as a beginner ARKit developer? Do I need to learn it at all? So I thought we could just begin by doing like a quick kind of Metal 101, because I think it's kind of a name that a lot of people have heard, but not a lot of people might have actually used it or you know really dug into it. So, Janie, do you want to just give us a quick kind of rundown? What is Metal? What is it for? What do you use it for?
1: Okay, I'll try to avoid the the Carl Sagan's uh, apple pie recipe. With, you know, must, first must create the universe type explanation.
0: <laughs> sure. So,
1: Metal is specifically um, Apple's proprietary general uh, g- uh, graphics programming unit programming framework. So. Um, your, your iPhone, your computer, like all, most of the devices that you have, have two brains. One brain is your, your central processing unit, or CPU, and then there's um, an extra one that's a graphics processing unit called a GPU. And the thing that differentiates the CPU from the GPU is that the GPU is very specialized, and it is completely maxed out with a bunch of little tiny cores that all only do floating point math. So it's covered with um, these algorithm logic units. So basically like what metal is, is it's a way of going in and doing a lot of floating point math in parallel and being able to do it very quickly. So if if your eyes have kind of glazed over and your brain's kind of shut down during this explanation, then you probably (laughs) don't actually need to drop down to metal for what it is that you're doing because most of the, the the general things that people need to do, like 3D graphics programming, can be done in something like SceneKit. Like, SceneKit has, has taken all of this low-level stuff that you'd have to do to try to set up um, Metal application, and it's wrapped it into some really nice, like, you know, Cocoa frameworks—you you can do something in like one line of code that, like under the surface, is actually being done by like 200 lines of code. Like generally speaking, like Metal is not the first place that you want to start with anything. There's always a higher level abstraction for anything that it is that you want to do. If you wanted to do machine vision and you needed to do image processing, there's built-in functionality for that in Core Image, and even if you didn't want to use the built-in Core Image um, filters has um, an ability to drop down to metal, so you can use the core image scaffolding to set up all of your rendering pipeline to get your image, but then you can write your actual, like, like, filter in metal. So, like, right. one of the, like, again, like, I, I feel like, like, everybody kind of wants to jump down to the lowest level abstraction, because I feel <laughs> like, like, I don't know, it's, it's like, people have have like, you know, like, who's a real programmer test is like, well, can you write a linked list in like, you know, assembly language that makes you a real <laughs> programmer? Or do you know this thing? Or do you know that thing? And like, Being a good programmer isn't about knowing the lowest level thing that you can find. It's about figuring out how to work with the highest level abstraction that you can find. And I also think a lot of people don't necessarily understand what programming in metal actually means. Because, like, I know when I got into it, like, I kind of thought that programming in metal was going to be more like what um core graphics actually is where you'd be like create a cube create a bezier curve create this and you you'd you'd fidget with it like you doing something like illustrator or photoshop but it's not like that it's like allocate this number of bits over here and allocate this number of bits and send them here and do this and it's just it's a lot of work and generally speaking you don't need to Know how to do all of that stuff, especially if you're just starting out. If you're just starting out with like AR Kit, start with Scene Kit. Start with Sprite Kit. Those are so much easier to get started with, and generally they will do whatever it is that you need them to do.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good tip. Uh, I always, I always think that the beauty of so many of Apple's kind of frameworks and the way they're designed and the way they relate to each other is that they. You know, you can always drop down to a lower level if you need to, but you don't have to. Yes. So just like you said, like you know, there's there's scene kit, there's sprite kit, and there's there's core animation and there's UI kit and there's all these kind of frameworks built on top of metal that you you get all the benefits from using metal. You get the performance, you get, you know, the fast rendering, you get support for all of Apple's platforms and all these kind of things, but you can work on a higher level of abstraction. Uh, and I think designing your code in a way that enables you to drop down when needed, can be really valuable, like not making really hard assumptions about the level that you're at. So if you're working with ARKit right now and you start, start working with SceneKit, maybe trying to structure in your rendering code. So it doesn't like, you know, bleed into all the, all your other logic so that you could easily in the future, say you run into some wall with SceneKit and you feel, okay, now I need to drop down a metal you know, you can without rewriting your entire app.
1: Did, did want to um, name drop slightly. So one of the few conferences that I am already speaking at this year is I'm speaking at raywenderlich.com. Um, R- RW DevCon,
0: mm, and my yeah.
1: talk is going to be about how to integrate Metal with SceneKit, and I talk about how you can just inject like one or two lines of Metal code into a SceneKit application, or you can completely replace the vertex and fragment shaders with Metal shaders while still being able to retain all of the benefits of SceneKit. So, like that's been kind of my 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 drum that I've been beating this year is this idea that you should do as much work as you can in a higher level abstraction like SceneKit or Core Image, and then only drop down to Metal if you need to write a shader
0: right yeah that's uh i think that's probably a good way of splitting it up but if you do need to uh work with metal if you find a need to work with metal uh with ir kit it's pretty easy to do so because just like with SceneKit kit and sprite kit apple provides like a, a kind of nice way to integrate with metal to get like A metal texture from the current AR session that you could manipulate in metal if you wanted to?
1: Well, to be specific about the AR kit stuff, so um, to do augmented reality, you need to have three things you need to have registration, you need to have um, visualization, and then you need to have like a a renderer. So, like, AR kit takes care of like making like. Creating anchor points and then analyzing for features in your in your space. But if you're going to create, in order to actually create anything that can be seen on the screen, you need a renderer, and that was that's where like Sprite Kit or Scene Kit come in. So like if you're doing AR Kit, you do have to have an external renderer of either like Sprite Kit, Scene Kit, Unity, Unreal, or whatever.
0: Awesome. So uh, let's move over now to the next question, and this one comes from someone who calls himself Coders Life on Twitter. That's a good life, the coder's life. And the question is, what is the best resource to learn and to understand the metal framework and shaders? Do I need to understand OpenGL ES as well? So, I thought this could be interesting from a couple of perspectives both, like how do you approach something and learn something like graphics programming, which like we talked about is very different from, you know, your kind of quote unquote normal programming if you're programming with the with the CPU in mind. And then also talk a little bit about how OpenGL kind of relates to metal. So do you want to start off with the first part there? Like, you know, say I wanted to learn metal today. Uh, I guess step one is go get your book, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but what what is step two? <laughs> well,
1: yeah. so when I went to go write the book, like there weren't really any, there weren't really a lot of other books that were out on the market about metal for me to read as a reference because like I was writing one of the first ones and like when I went and was trying to learn OpenGL before metal came out I found a lot of the OpenGL books to be very frustrating because they just talked about like, how to do something in OpenGL. And OpenGL is basically talking about how to package a bunch of bits and send them places and process them. So I'm looking at this going, like, okay, I know I can take a bunch of bits and I can put it, like, into a structure and do something with it, but I I don't know how to make it do something useful. Like, that doesn't, like, I don't, this isn't being explained to me in a a way that I understand. And so one of the things I tried to focus on in my Metal book was I was trying to work from the perspective that you were somebody who was an iOS programmer who knew Swift, but had never worked with a graphics programming API framework ever before. So like the biggest thing that I found to be frustrating when I tried to learn graphics stuff was that um, not only do you have to understand the framework, but you also have to understand all the math that goes into actually creating anything interesting and useful, and then you also have to have an inter- like a, a knowledge of just graphic specific concepts that were completely like programming and platform agnostic. Like you have to understand like what um, like th- there's different types of, of spaces. So there's like object space and clipping space and world space, and like none of this stuff is is explained very well. But there were a lot of really good resources like uh computer graphics principles and practice and like over the last 20 or 30 years there have been a lot of people who have written a lot of books about a lot of these different concepts so like when you're talking about learning metal like i think that a lot of people who've written books assume that you know the math and they assume that you know all of these graphics concepts but like so they only explain the framework of the api in the context of how all these other ones used to work so like for like specifically with with my book I just I wanted to try to take the approach that people coming in didn't know anything about that stuff and so I tried to make that as um Beginner friendly as possible by trying to explain the graphics concepts that you need to understand in order to actually create something that's interesting and useful. Because that, to me, was the thing that had always tripped me up when I was trying to learn this initially. So there are a lot of really good resources out there for OpenGL ES, and most of the um, concepts that you would read in those are still applicable with Metal. It's just that you're um, sending, you're, you're packaging up the data and sending it a little bit differently, but it's still kind of fundamentally doing. The same thing. Like you're still taking a bunch of vertex data and color data and motion data and like you know mesh data and a bunch of other stuff, and you're packaging it and you're sending it to the GPU and you're saying, here, do something to this.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a really good point. Like you said, because that was the same experience I had, where you know I was really excited. I wanted to you know build a game and I wanted to learn about like OpenGL and Metal and I want to learn about all these things. And there's a lot of like you say, there's a lot of assumptions that you know, you speak the language that you know, like, what, what's a vertex shader? What's a, uh, you know, what's a pixel shader? Uh, what's, a, you know, what's a draw call? What's a bump map? Yeah, what's exactly. A cube map? <laughs> and, you know, that can be really intimidating at first, especially if you're not used to any of that stuff. So I would definitely recommend trying to seeking out uh, resources that are on that kind of beginner entry level first, or doing something like reading your book where you don't make those kind of assumptions. Uh, I think also ObjectiveC.io has a great kind of just starting article about uh, metal. All right, so um, on the topic of of OpenGL and whether or not you know you should invest in learning that as well, because in many ways Metal was kind of designed to kind of overcome some of the shortcomings of OpenGL. Um, so, could we just talk a quick, quick bit about kind of what's the difference between OpenGL and Metal?
1: So, the the story of OpenGL is actually somewhat interesting. So, back uh, when you, you first started getting like into the, the 3D graphics stuff and, like in the 70s and 80s, every single uh, chip manufacturer and card manufacturer, whatever had their own version of like their, their own uh, API for graphics. And uh, John Carmack, the person behind uh, Doom and Quake, he got tired of going and having to write rewrite all of his code to work on every single platform and system that existed. And uh, he started working with OpenGL, and OpenGL was a really good uh, framework for working with graphics. And so he told all of the different platform manufacturers, like, dude, I'm not going and rewriting all of my stuff for every single one of these platforms. If you wanna have my next game come out on your platform, you have to support OpenGL. So everybody's like, oh crap, you know, like we, we have to be able to support like we have to, we we want Quake to be on our, our, our system. We need to make sure that like we support OpenGL. So like just kind of by default back in the early nineties, everybody had OpenGL support on their systems and it kinda of became a de facto standard because it was something that everybody supported at that point in time. But hardware changed a lot in the last twenty years. Like back when um, OpenGL first kind of became the standard, like, um, we did, I don't think that there were GPUs at the time, or if there were, they weren't very powerful, so like, you, they couldn't do a lot of work, so you tried to offload as much work to the CPU as you could, but then, like, GPUs became hugely more powerful, and but they never deprecated anything, they left all of this junk in... The, uh, in the OpenGL, like, like APIs, and, like, um, they came up with, like, a stripped-down version of it, um, OpenGL ES, that got rid of a lot of the, the junk and the garbage or whatever, but everything was kind of constrained to all of the stuff that had been written, like, 20, 30 years ago. It was kind of like a similar thing to, with Objective-C, where Objective-C wasn't necessarily, like, a bad language, but, like, it was kind of constrained by all of the history of all of the stuff that, like, mm-hmm. yeah. it had been designed around back when it was originally created, like, in the 80s or 90s. so. So like, metal was kind of designed to be like, sort of like Swift, it was kind of designed to come in and go, okay, we've been working with this for like 30 years, there's a whole bunch of stuff in here that we don't particularly like, and we're gonna go in and we're gonna change this and make it more modern and get it to actually work with the hardware that we have now, rather than worrying about how the hardware used to be back in like 1997.
0: Yeah, exactly. And also to focus in on Apple's platforms, because since Apple also designed the GPUs, they can make a lot of assumptions in the graphics API about how the architecture looks like.
1: Right, one of the um, frameworks associated with Metal, the Metal Performance Shaders, um, they adapt a lot of really common operations like Gaussian blurs, but they have like, I don't know, like 50 different implementations under the hood that are each designed to be optimized for whatever version of Apple's hardware you're on. And they can only do that because it's their platform. They know, okay, we have like an A10, an A7, we have a a this, we have a that, Uh, it might be an iPhone 7, it might be 6, like they they, they are able to go in and, and know every single version of hardware that they're going to have and be able to optimize for that piece of hardware
0: yeah exactly when you're if you're starting out and you want to just learn kind of the basics uh maybe you know starting learning the basics about graphics programming first and then maybe learning metal because you know, you can get started with it uh, right away.
1: Like I might might be, I might be biased here, but like I found learning metal even without books and documentation, whatever, to be like more intuitive and easier to figure out than trying to learn OpenGL. And I don't know if it's because like, I got to be a better programmer when I learned metal than I did with OpenGL or like I had to because I was contractually obligated to learn it. (laughs) But like, I've gone in and tried looking at OpenGL. I'm like, I don't like, this is awful and crufty. It's like, it's the way I I think a lot of people feel like if they look at like Objective-C from Swift like I did Objective-C for a few years and then like I did Swift and I thought like Swift was just really weird But then every time I try to go back to Objective-C I'm just like why did I put up with this like for so long? This is just it's clunky and and awful and you have to do all of this stuff, but like you don't think about it at the time
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly Yeah, and it's it's in many ways similar and you know uh, a lot of people have also asked me over the years like or since Swift came out, you know, should I bother learning Objective-C and I guess you know the the answer there is kind of similar. Is like you know if you're if you're gonna in, interact a lot with Objective C and you kind of need to uh, work a lot with it for for many different reasons, then of course you know learning it can be super valuable. But if you just want to kind of get in there and start learning iOS development, then starting with Swift and not worrying about so much about Objective C can be a you know great way to start.
1: And I, I don't want to crap on Objective C in any way at all. There, it does still f- perform a, a very important function in iOS development like like for one thing I don't think you can do core audio work in um, in swift because it's not runtime safe and you still have to interact with the core audio layers through c+ plus and objective c so like I, i'm I, I'm not Trying to be like one of those language hipsters talking about how awful Objective C <laughs> was. It just—it was a product product of its time. And like, yeah, of course, we, we we move forward and we look at okay, well, this thing didn't work and this didn't work. How do we make things better? And like that's an important thing to do. Is because like I'm sure people look at Metal in like 20 years and go like, ah, this is awful. Why didn't they do this thing? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did they write the code manually in a text editor? <laughs> <laughs> what was what, what were they, animals? <laughs> All right, so I think we are uh, kind of segueing now into the next question. So I think it could be a good time to, to bring that one up. And this one comes from uh, Ababab, uh, who asks, are there still good reasons to learn and to use OpenGL? Yes. And like we talked about, like, you know, if you just want to get started in learning, probably starting with, with just learning graphics programming, learning metal can be really great. But also I think there are there are some really good reasons to learn about OpenGL OpenGL as well if you want to get really into graphics programming. And one reason is that uh, Metal is only supported on Apple's platforms. So if you are looking to build something that is more cross-platform outside of Apple's ecosystem, maybe you want to support Android, maybe you want to support like Windows or something if you're building a game, then OpenGL can be a great way to go if you're not going if you're not building for example a game and you want to Use a game engine like Unity or Unreal.
1: And that was actually where I was going to go with that. Was that, like, if you're asking, like, if there's any point in learning OpenGL, like, I would say no. But then if you also asked, is there any point in learning Metal, I'd kind of also say no, too. <laughs> like, I because like, well, <laughs> all of the arguments you made about the cross platform stuff, like, it, like, rather than jumping down to the slowest level of abstraction of learning, uh, you know, graphics programming API, like, I would recommend starting with Unity or starting with Unreal because, like, those. Are really good ways of actually learning all of these graphics concepts that we were talking about like I I've gone in and I've, I've been learning scene kit and I'm teaching myself unity right now and because I had to learn all of these concepts like the hard way I'm jumping in and going wow all of this stuff like so much easier because like I know like because I had to go and learn how to do this stuff like without like a user interface to just click buttons on. I had to do all this in code like a savage. And so like if you wanted to do cross-platform stuff, like I'd recommend just starting with a game engine and like seeing if you need to drop down from there.
0: Yeah, totally. But there, there are also, you know, sometimes you want to learn like at, at a low level and sometimes you want to write like your own render or something like that. And, and then these things can be really interesting and fun and sometimes also really useful if you want to build like a more custom renderer or... You know, something like that. So while I was working on the book, like originally the the book was basically like
1: 100% graphics focused. So there were, like I think there were two or three chapters about the compute pipeline, but most of it was about graphics. And I realized about halfway through the book that the real gains that you have, like, especially as like a, a single or a small team of, of iOS developers, are not in doing custom rendering but they're in using the compute kernel to do neural networks and machine vision and things that are not part of the rendering pipeline. So like w- most of this talk that we've had has been entirely focused on the idea that you're going to use metal for 3D graphics, but I feel like if you're a small team of people the biggest wins that you get are in doing things on the compute pipeline.
0: Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. You using things like, you know, CoreML and things like that that can tie into metal, right?
1: Right. Because, like, we've been talking about, like, doing all the stuff with graphics, but, like, that's one of the the big advantages that Metal had over OpenGL is OpenGL does not allow you to do general-purpose GPU programming.
0: Right, exactly. And this is actually really interesting, I think, where, you know, we've found now, now that we're getting into this, like, machine learning era, uh, we've kind of found a second use for the GPU, you know, like a second kind of big use case for it.
1: Well, I've had fun like when I talk to people that aren't necessarily technical, and they're, I'm like, "Oh, I wrote a tech book. Oh, what'd you write it about? Like, I wrote about graphics and neural networks, and they give you a look like, like, wait, is that two different books? Like, how, like, why would you have a book about <laughs> both of those things? It's like, because well, all the math underlying math is very similar."
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's say you uh, are getting into graphics. Just let's, let's just uh, say graphics in this case. Uh, another case I would make, kind of for OpenGL, to that it's still kind of relevant is. If you want to learn and you want to like just get into things, uh, OpenGL has so much history and there's so much material, there's so many, so much documentation, there's so many examples online. So it can be in some regards, even though like you mentioned, it has a lot of cruft and there's a lot of things you have to understand about it. uh, There's a lot of things out there that could potentially help you. Uh, get started.
1: You just have to make sure that you're, you're looking at contemporary OpenGL and not stuff from like 10 or 15 years ago. I was looking at a, a shader for a possible project I wanted to do as a demo, and I didn't know anything about OpenGL, so I like, took it to my boyfriend who who knows more about it than I do. I'm like, hi, can we do this? He's just like, no, this is like 15 years old, like this, no, nothing, <laughs> like none of these, these frameworks exist anymore, these libraries are gone, this is, no, can't use this. <laughs>
0: If the blog post is called How to Build Quake 1, then maybe look away. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe look into it, because it's really interesting. All right, so I think now we can move on to the next question. And we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between Metal and OpenGL in terms of the shading language. So this is a question from Dan K, who asks, are there significant differences between Metal and OpenGL shaders that could make porting impossible? So I thought we could just start by just talking a little bit about what a shader is, because this is a term you hear a lot when you talk about graphics programming or, you know, GPU programming in general. So Janie, exactly what is a shader and what do you use it for?
1: So a shader is a small program that's written in a C-like language that is derived from C that is proprietary to, like, like so for OpenGL you have um, the OpenGL shading language, and for Metal you have the Metal shading language. So we, we've been talking a little bit about uh, different pipelines, so you have a rendering pipeline and you have a compute pipeline. Um, if you have a rendering pipeline, there's, I think, like, I don't know, like, eight different steps that I have in diagrams in my book. You know, Buy it on Amazon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> link in the show notes. Yeah, link
1: in the show notes. <laughs> but um, <laughs> part parts of so there are two parts of the pipeline that you, as the programmer, are able to actually go in and and touch and be able to affect, and that's the um, the 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 vertex shader and the fragment shader. So the vertex shader is a program that controls the scene's geometry. That's where you would go in and you would. Uh, make something make something move, make something rotate, make something, like if you, if you had something that was going to explode where you would calculate out where each different piece of the the, the object that you're exploding would, would be in space at any particular point in time. And then um, the other shader is the fragment shader. The fragment shader takes a lot of information in to determine what color every single pixel in the scene is based on, on lighting, based on position, based on like, the, the inherent color based on the shininess of the materials. So like, these are the the two parts in this pipeline that you can come in and you can uh, tweak and poke and affect to tell the data to be processed a certain way. So that's in the rendering pipeline. And in the compute pipeline, there's only one shader and that's the kernel shader. And the kernel shader basically just goes in and determines how each piece of data is going to be processed mathematically so that can you can process data mathematically to determine things like where edges are and um, you can combine that together to construct objects that can be de- that, that can be um, analyzed by a neural network
0: and I think it's important to clarify here we, we talked about a little bit earlier about like just how low level metal is or shading languages in general are it's you are you are literally doing what you said you're literally doing the math on the individual pixels or the individual vertices manually so there's no like you know we talked about lighting there's no like you know light manager get the light for this you know you have to do all that yourself
1: yep you're you're taking a bunch of floating point numbers and you are processing them mathematically
0: Yeah, exactly, and and anything that you have, all the concepts you have in the world, like you, if you have physics or if you have lighting or things like that, that's something that you will have to kind of set up yourself and compute yourself or send as input to to your shader. You could do as well.
1: Anything that can be quantified can be processed mathematically.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. Cool. So yeah, a shader is basically like a little program that runs on the GPU. So what? Are the exact differences between the metal shading language and the OpenGL shading language? Are there anything that you would say makes something really incompatible if you were to port something? Absolutely not. That is it. Basically, both of those languages existed
1: to. Try and do this floating point math, and since math hasn't really changed significantly in, in the last like 500 years, like they, they have very similar analogous data structures. So with the OpenGL ES shading language, one of the optimizations that was added to it from OpenGL was um, precision. Like because you're, you're working with embedded devices that don't have a lot of power, or at least they didn't back in like 2008. Like if you didn't need something to be very precise, you didn't want to waste a lot of your memory. Uh, like having everything out to like the 32nd decimal point. Um, and that, that was a, that was an addition to the OpenGL ES shading language that it, there's a, a, it, it's a little bit different with the metal shading language because with, um with the OpenGL one, you'll say like, if, if you have a one have a, a vector, which is like an array of three objects, you would say a vec three, but then like not a, not a vec, not, not, not French, like a, and then VEC three. Mm-hmm. But for the way that that's handled in the metal shading language is that you are de- you are declaring whatever your data type is, and then how many objects you want to have in that data type. So instead of having a vec three, which would automatically be like three floats, you would have float three or float three by three if you wanted to have a matrix of three by three objects. So basically, all you have to do is you have to go in and anytime it says like vec mat whatever, you just change it to whatever your data type is. Right. And then beyond that, like, I think most of the, um, math functions are the same. Um, I think it's possible that metal might have a few more math functions than GLSL does, but that doesn't make what, like anything that you're doing incompatible. You just have to go in and go, okay, what's the analogous thing for normalize? What's the analogous thing for refract? What's the analogous thing for this thing? Like I've, i basically just like taken metal, I've, I've taken, um, OpenGL, ES shaders and copy and pasted them directly into my code and just made those changes. And that was good enough.
0: Perfect. So porting a OpenGL, I mean at least on the shader level, porting an OpenGL rendered app to to Metal shouldn't be that much work. I guess the most work lies in setting up like the pipeline states and do, writing the actual code to to kind of you know send data to the shaders.
1: Well, that's kind of like saying like this this idea is like it's a really simple idea. All you have to do is write the app and then sell it to, to the public.
0: I mean, that's the, that's the, that's, the, that's
1: where all of the work is.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Cool. So uh, speaking about shaders, uh, we have what I think will be our last question, and this one comes from Christian Treffs. And he asks, in a vertex shader, is it more efficient or a better practice to use a vertex struct containing data about vertices uh, in one buffer binding, or is it better to split these up into multiple ones? So uh, I think for those who haven't worked with shaders before, we should probably just explain a little bit what this means. So when we're talking about uh, binding things, we're basically talking about sending arguments to the shading function.
1: Uh, the way that I like to think about it is that you have, you have a blob of data that you are setting over in your normal, your application that in your blob of data includes things like your colors and the, the position of your vertices or, or et or whatever. And you're setting, you're, you're setting those bytes and allocating them. And you're, you're taking this blob of data and you're packaging it and you're throwing it over to the GPU. So when the GPU gets this blob of data, it just kind of looks at it and goes, okay, this is a blob of like 164 bytes of data. I don't have any idea. what." any of this stuff is so you need to on the GPU side create an analogous data structure that kind of decodes for the GPU how all of this data is allocated you say like the first you know 16 bytes are color information and the next 32 bytes are position information and the next 32 bytes are whatever so that it can kind of go in and go okay I know how to split up this blob of data and be able to actually like plug all of the values that I'm getting from the CPU into the equations that I need to in order for you to get the information that you needed to the effect that you're actually trying to accomplish. Right. So, like, the big thing that's difficult that, that one of the big, big things not difficult that that's that's uh, time consuming for the CPU and the GPU is packaging up this data and sending it over. So, um, the the question of if you take your your vertices, normals, colors, texture coordinates, etc., and put them into one buffer binding, that is um, that's called interleaving, and that is actually the the more effect efficient way of sending things over to the GPU because you're that way you're, you're packaging everything into one GPU like data call as opposed to splitting it up into like 12 of them like it's it's definitely more efficient to interleave your data and send it as one blob rather than multiple small packets of smaller blobs.
0: When do you in your kind of uh, journey of learning about these things when do you think you should start considering these kind of optimizations? Is it something that you should, should consider early in order to like follow the best practice or is it something that you can kind of optimize later?
1: I think if you're going like if, if you're going to all of the trouble of actually getting down to this lowest level, then you should always think about optimization. Because if it's something that doesn't matter to you, then you should just use sync it. <laughs> uh, Right. <laughs> <laughs> it you. Like like you will, you only want to worry about the stuff if it's absolutely vitally necessary to what it is that you're doing for you to get squeeze as much of the optimization out as you can. If you like like I I I agree. Like, like when I first started, I'm just like I don't like. I don't know anything. I need to do 20 different things. I'm going to focus on like these four easy things that I can do and I'll worry about the other ones later. So like, like if you're just learning, then don't necessarily worry about optimization. But if you're actually trying to create this in a production application, like after you learn a bit, then you absolutely should be focused on optimization because otherwise there's no real point in doing something in Metal when you could use something else.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I guess that kind of ties back to our previous thing where it's like... You know, you could you can do these for for multiple reasons like you could be for learning, for fun, but at the end of the day like if you are not in a really performance critical path then perhaps a higher level of abstraction is what you need. Cool. So I think that's all the questions that we have time for. Um, so again, if you want to submit a question for an upcoming episode of this show, you can head over to swiftbicendale.com slash podcast, or just tweet a question or topic to at Swift on Twitter. So uh, we've, we're about to reach the end now of this episode. So Janie, now that people have uh, heard a little bit about Metal, they've heard a little bit about you know, how it compares to OpenGL and how to get started. And let's say now, despite our numerous times that we've said, oh, you should just use it just use some, <laughs> some more high level of abstraction. Uh, people want to get into metal. Um, what's the best way to kind of get, get, get your hands on your book. Um,
1: so my book is available on amazon.com and it's also available on informit.com on uh, Inform IT has a. Regularly has a decent number of sales, so if you want to just get the P- oh, and they also sell them as PDFs and not just as you know those those ghastly Kindle proprietary eBooks. So if you want a, if you want a PDF of the book, I'd recommend going to informit.com, and if you want a paper copy, um, informit has that as well as and so does Amazon.
0: Great, that's awesome, and we'll put links in the show notes to both of those things as well if people want to check it out. Great, so all that remains now is for me to thank you very much for joining me on this episode.
1: Oh, I really appreciate you having me on. I'm always happy to geek out about uh, graphics programming and floating-point mathematics.
0: Yeah, it was a (laughs) lot of fun. And I think it was great information and a good starting point in case people want to dive in and learn more. And we'll put so many links as we can for more information and the things that we mentioned during the show as well.
1: I, I, I just wanted to just iterate one like I'm, I'm not telling people that there's no point in learning metal. It's just like metal works better if you use it in conjunction with other things.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. And in case you need to harvest that raw power, because there's really a big performance gain to be had if you learn, and you master it, and you use it in the right way. Yep. Awesome. So if people want to find you online uh, and follow you, where can they go? Um, I can be found on
1: Twitter at RedQueenCoder. I have a blog at RedQueenCoder.com. And if you're interested in following my fumblings through game development, I have RedQueenGameDev.com as well.
0: Awesome. Great stuff. And you can find me on Twitter as well at John Sundell. And you can find everything about this show and about the weekly Swift blog post at SwiftBySundell.com. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.